Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest is Rob Gaskell, a partner at Appold, the London-based emerging technology advisory and investment company. Our subject today is the growing interest in cryptocurrency as a tool in corporate treasury management. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Dominic. Yeah, lovely to be here and uh, happy to discuss some of the things we're working on and also, uh, also some of the research material that we send out and ask as we write. Talking of your research material, I've read a piece of that uh, and in it you call cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, primary digital assets, not a term I'd come across before. Now, why are you using the term primary digital assets? We call it primary mainly because they have the most use. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are the largest uh, in terms of market capitalization. Um, cryptocurrencies, there are thousands of them, but certainly Bitcoin and Ethereum are the, are the biggest and they have the most use. So we call them the primary digital assets and the ones that are only really being looked at in terms of uh, institutional uh, purchases right now for institutional services right now. But, um, but what what they uh, what 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 do we see them as though in terms of what are they you know um, I, I, my first thought was maybe you see them as commodities rather than as currencies. So yeah, we don't the, the, the term is cryptocurrencies and they also have lots of different terms. I mean uh, the regulators call them crypto assets. Uh, we like to call them digital assets uh, more than that because crypto and crypto, uh, as in the term cryptography, is just a mechanism to uh, obviously safeguard the assets, safeguard the assets and uh, generate the assets. But anyway, that's getting into technicalities. The, these, do I see them as commodities or do I see them as currencies? Do I see them as working in transaction networks? They do all those things. They have many properties and they have properties for different institutions or retail or on the corporate side. Uh, professional investors see it very differently from, say, a service provider who may be using the currency as a transactional network. So it, they all have different use cases. And, uh, but the majority of the use cases right now we're seeing from the institutional side is specifically around it being a, um, something similar, I would say, to something like uh, uh, gold or something like that, a commodity, where they see it as a... Um, the hedging against uh, existing assets and other assets that are around the world right now. So it's a hedging tool. It's a it's a store of value. Do you foresee a time when, and we're talking here about it about treasury management and companies are storing up cash, if you like, because they've got to pay for things at some point in the future. Do you see these cryptocurrencies, the likes of Bitcoin and Ethereum, actually becoming payment mechanisms as well? at any point in the future? Certainly, certainly, yes. I mean, we've already seen, uh, I would say, a small amount of this going on in the Bitcoin. We're using Bitcoin, some elements of Ethereum and some of the projects that are running on Ethereum. There are thousands of projects running on Ethereum right now, all different types of transactional things going on. There's a whole new world of something called DeFi, decentralized finance, uh, which is coming, which isn't really the topic of conversation, but it's a, a totally new one that we could do later, if you like. Um, but certainly, there, I would say there is some transactional going on in terms of making payments, but we are going to see this really explode when we start to move into other areas. So, so 
central bank digital currencies, they're called CBDC. Uh, the uh, work has been going on in the US, the UK and EU. They've all announced specific work on this. This is where uh, cryptocurrencies um, are actually issued effectively by the central banks. Uh, you've also seen, um, and another thing that's, that's happened is that in China, the digital yuan has been uh, announced. It, went, it was testing for a number of months and now is working live in some states uh, in China. And what you're going to see with that is that I believe is that will become a, a very prominent thing within China and then also go down into supply chain and other areas. So you're starting to see that as a, as a, as a payment network and the, the technologies that are really born out of Bitcoin and its principles being applied to national currencies as well. So I think to sum that up, I'd like to sum that up into three areas that I think is the future because this might be confusing to some people because people will confuse maybe a, a state-issued um, currency and a global currency, public one like Bitcoin. So I think there's going to be three main areas in the future. You're going to have the, the central banks issuing a digital currency and then that being the prominent currency of those individual geographies, those countries. You will then have global public digital currencies like um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others that may come along in the future, but they're public-based. They're global, so they don't have a geographic presence. They're protected by the nature of these, um, these technical solutions, and they, are, um, they have all the properties, all the beneficial properties of something like Bitcoin right now. And, and then finally, I think you will have corporate-issued uh, coins effectively and digital digital currencies where there's loyalty built in or there's other types of um, service based uh, where those corporations are global as well so there's a global currency running but it's issued and backed by the corporation so at the moment these are the three that i see and i think in the future as an individual as a human on the planet you will have a wallet that will hold all those three and you'll use them in different ways. You haven't mentioned stable coins. Are these getting any traction as a tool in corporate treasury management? Um, not in corporate treasury management. More, more is it's more stable coins are more used for uh, trading and trading flow. Um, so when you want to trade easily in and out of cryptocurrency, uh, in between the fiat world and the um, digital currency world, it's actually a lot easier to. Um, do that with a stable currency, mm -hmm. stable coin. And uh, typically there are dollar, double dollar stable coins or there are um, pound stable, euro stable coins or even more advanced ones. <laughs> the stable coin market is quite an interesting one, um, but typically um, I don't think a treasury manager would look at that unless they are looking at it as an easy way of trading in and out of um, the cryptocurrencies. Given that niche stablecoins have, have established between um, fiat and, and crypto, do you think that CBDCs will knock them out? That's an interesting one. Uh, there's certainly certainly a, th a threat. Um, again, these these central these um, stablecoins right now are being issued by sometimes technical providers, sometimes financial institutions. Um, 
So they would go down to that, that bucket of the corporate thing, I think, in the future. And there will be this, this corporate currency that may be asset backed to a central bank's currency. So you could have a stable coin with an asset backed with a dollar being issued by JP Morgan uh, or Goldman Sachs. That, and that could be effectively their, their global currency, but it's backed by the dollar. Uh, but that dollar is issued now in, in, in the future as a central bank uh, digital currency. Now, I have to ask you about the, the rougher investment in, in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It was relatively sizable uh, by the standards of, of previous institutional interest in the, in the asset class anyway. And it's been explained as a, uh, by rougher as a hedge against inflation which is a mounting concern, a hedge also against um, devaluations of the currencies they're invested in. And while devaluations and inflation are not the same thing, they're obviously linked. Mm. What do you think that says about how a leading asset manager sees Bitcoin? Are they seeing it as a commodity and as a currency or are they seeing it as something else? I think primarily, if you look at, I mean, my background is asset management. So primarily you're looking at uh, capital return for your investors, aren't you? <laughs> so um, capital gain. Um, so I think really they're looking at it from a um, capital gain point of view as well. I think that's primary with all, all asset managers. That's what they would typically do. But I think there is a, um, uh, economic principle there in that there are there is issues around inflation right now there is issues around money supply and increasing volume of money supply um, in certain economies and you compare that to bitcoin which has a very deterministic money supply that can't be changed it can't be influenced uh, you've got those two types of assets sitting there that are going to go disproportionately um, away from each other, effectively, uh, with, with something that's increasing at a terrific rate and something that isn't increasing in terms of its supply. If demand um, for dollars decreases but increases in terms of Bitcoin, then the price of Bitcoin will go up. So there's a capital gain element as well as a hedging element against the um, currencies that the asset manager operates in. And that, can, that still also applies to institutions that hold cash, that run uh, effectively portfolio management on their treasury, because they also might, have want, might not want so much dollar exposure. And where do they go? And when they look at the different ass assets that they could potentially move into, um, Bitcoin is, being, is one that has been talked about quite, quite a lot now as an alternative to many other assets that they could invest in. Well, if we're worrying about fiat currencies being debauched, uh, I hesitate to think what uh, central banks might do once they have CBDCs as well. That might, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's, that's why I think there's going to be three. I don't think central bank digital currencies will be the one and they stop all corporate currencies and they stop all public currencies and public chains from operating. I think there will be a future where we have these multiple options. Um, because you know uh, an economy can effectively trash their own currency by manipulating it, and you've seen perfect examples of that in places like Venezuela or Argentina, um, or even when it's been influenced by sanctions in places like Iran. You know that currencies can be massively influenced by uh, external or internal factors. Uh, yes, you're right. Even if it's, yeah. if it's digital, that can happen quicker. 
Uh, one other thing I, I was interested to read in your paper was that you, you thought that Bitcoin had passed the liquidity test even on a weekend. Now, is it, is it really true that you can trade hundreds of millions of, of Bitcoin uh, without moving the price against yourself? Depends on how, how big how big the, the trade is, obviously. Uh, when when Bitcoin's market capitalization, which is currently sitting somewhere between 900, 950 billion dollars, when it was a lot lot, lot, lot smaller, or typically around about the three, two to three hundred billion dollar double level, yeah. you definitely had situations where um, some even smaller small investments were having quite big impacts on the price. Now you see it's all relative, but you see um, most of the trading activity doesn't have a, such a huge influence on the price, um, price movement, and um, certainly liquidity tests. The benefits of the liquidity, liquidity is sitting currently at around well, December when it was being when I was tracking it in December. I'm sure it's around the same or even more now. It's about thirty billion dollars per day. So if you've got thirty billion dollars per day of liquidity. Then you and you're only looking to, and you're looking to do like mass mutual. So Massachusetts Mutual did a very interesting thing. They they took a percentage of their very small one, 0.04 percent, but they invested 100 million dollars in Bitcoin um, last year, and have obviously done very well out of that because of the price the price rise. But what that that was a very important move, and what um and that type of trading could be placed in a way that doesn't impact the price substantially because of the liquidity in the market. And when you're talking about weekend liquidity, uh, yes, there is weekend liquidity because there are there's trading actively trading on active trading on the weekend. The majority of the network is still um, retail, and uh, and there's retail activity um, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And are our friends, the algo traders, getting involved in the in this market? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, there's many um, many algorithmic uh, trading companies and uh, institutions, um, existing ones that have got that have modified their algos and uh, connected them to these new world of uh, digital currencies. Or um, you've also got new one, new funds that have been created. That uh, have algorithmic approaches, um, even some AI. I, I advised uh, last year, sorry, 2019, a um, uh, AI um, hedge fund specifically uh, using algorithms on on Bitcoin, Bitcoin futures. Mm -hmm. So yes, there are many. There are many. <laughs> and that's that's um, presumably quite an effective way of of. Um, making sure you don't move the price against you. Mm. Very clearly, you know, that as the value of Bitcoin goes up, you know, the liquidity kind of climbs up with it. So what's a big trade is a different, uh, the number is different now than what it was a year or two ago. Um, but are these algos a, a useful mechanism for institutions to access this market? Would you advise them to do that or is it purely a professional trading activity? Well, I mean, you can buy an algo, you can build an algo or use an algorithm to, um, you know, to basically buy in a, in a, in a, all kinds of different ways, weighted average or different or dark pool methods or all kinds of different ways of, uh, of getting access, buying and selling Bitcoin without, without necessarily moving the price. Mm -hmm. 
So yes, there would be sophisticated ways, more sophisticated ways if you're um, trying to place large amounts of money and uh, effectively get the best deal possible. Um, yes, there are definitely ways you can do that using technology effectively because you're integrating all of the um, exchanges, service providers have ways to connect and, and, and have um, you know, a lot of the professional uh, provider, uh, service providers out there and uh, financial service providers and so on will have connections into CME futures. They'll have connections into um, other trading venues uh, where there's a lot of liquidity and the market makers are all doing that. Uh, and, and some have very good technical solutions to help them, algorithmic technical solutions to help them. Right, so I can, I can, I can get access from my friendly investment bank in the usual, in the usual way. That's, uh, that's good to know. Uh, now, talking of, of access and, and market makers, one of the routes into the market you, you talk about in, in the paper is through, is through ETFs. Mm -hmm. now, with ETFs, because of the creation destruction mechanism, uh, you do tend to run into liquidity problems from, mm -hmm. from time to time. And I assume you, know, you need to access the underlying assets. Um, and I assume that would be an issue here as well. What would you advise clients thinking of going down that path to look out for? Well, I don't, I don't currently, I don't think there is an issue with liquidity for ETFs. There certainly is for other types of um, exchange-traded funds or exchange-traded products that base themselves on illiquid assets. Um, there are illiquid assets out there that uh, some ETFs, um, you know, represent and but right now it's been proved that there is enough liquidity for most of nearly all of the ETFs in the market and there's no major issues I don't think um, that uh, are in this space because of the general liquidity in the market mm -hmm. if liquidity if liquidity dries up then that could be an issue but um, there's certainly enough volume on CME futures to carry just one venue to, to um, for the market makers to uh, have enough um, you know, liquidity to be able to uh, provide the trading activity for the exchange. And have you have you developed strong views on where, by which I mean which trading venue? You know, I'm a corporate treasurer. I'm an asset manager. Where should I want to? I've decided I want to buy some Bitcoin or some Ethereum. What do you what do you, what characteristics do you look for in a platform? or service provider offering access to the market? What's good and what's bad? Sure, I mean, typically what, what, what my company does is we grade um, a lot of the service providers. We don't, we don't only grade the exchanges where you might want to, where you need to be able to buy or get liquidity. I mentioned CME and there's other, there's many other exchanges out there. Um, but also we grade the, um, uh, service providers um, in terms of custody and uh, insurance and other things you, you should also, also have. I mean, by doing that, we're able to give a very good uh, independent view on the, what, what someone would need, what an institution would need. Uh, because institutions, different institutions have different needs. A classic corporation that just wants to, or an asset manager that just wants to buy Bitcoin for their treasury or for their fund, then obviously we will find the best way for them to do that and the best way to store it and the best way to safeguard it, typically with insurance. Um, 
sometimes that's quite bespoke depending on their needs. Uh, there's there's no easy company. I mean, I can tell you that some of the service providers that are coming out now are announcing services. Uh, Standard Charters has launched a custody service um, for institutions. Uh, their minimum ticket size is $32 million. So minimum uh, for a fund manager or an asset manager or a treasury manager to custody with Standard Chartered Bank is, is, is a sizable amount, um, mainly because they they effectively are backing that backing that up themselves. So you're relying on the bank's infrastructure and their own um, capital pool and reserve to effectively uh, secure the asset. And that's going to be, uh, I think, something that really happens this year. We'll see a lot of banks and institutions uh, announce these types of services. And we're, we, uh, my company, is set up to advise those um, either using providers, third-party third providers, or building out their own services. And, um, and right now, the market is full, unfortunately, of um, quite technical solutions. And not very, not very many of them, I would say, are institutional, regulatory ready uh, to, to um, uh, provide those types of services. So uh, we, we effectively guide those companies through that minefield. As you say, there are lots of uh, the technology for custodying digital assets in general has evolved considerably. Mm -hmm. are, are you skeptical of some of the more recent propositions put forward? Uh, are we still in a, a situation where you 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 keep the the pin on a on a USB stick and lock it in a lead vine vault? No, no, I mean that that's that's certainly for for retail and um, if retail want I say small amounts of, of money, but but I mean what, what you've had though with people that have invested in Bitcoin very early, or Bitcoin or any crypto, or things like Ethereum in the early days in 2015 16. You invested in those, and now you're sitting on a sizable sum. I always say to them, would you be comfortable having a suitcase under your bed with two million, three million pounds sitting in it? Um, and that sort of scares them a bit because some people have got, you know, acquired now quite sizable assets themselves, mm -hmm. and they're relying on USB sticks and other things to safeguard them. Um, and now they've they've had to look at other using other types of service providers to, um, you know secure those assets rather than relying on a USB stick uh, hidden in hidden in your um, under your bed somewhere or something. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly for institutions it's totally different. I mean institutions will, will provide will rely on service providers. I, I don't see institutions typically um, you know trying to safeguard these assets with uh, themselves. I, I, I think they will they will pay for institutions to look after those assets. Mm -hmm. Uh, you touched on this earlier, but it's a it's a kind of operational aspect of this, which is how difficult or easy is it to get in and out of 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 a cryptocurrency back into uh, out of fiat currency into crypto and out of crypto back into into fiat currency? Uh, is that is that getting easier now? It's certainly getting easier, but I wouldn't say it's easy for a lot of institutions. Again, a bit of a minefield and depending on how much you want to buy and how much you want to move around, banks uh, can be quite difficult um, to deal with, I would say, in the, in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, if you're a prominent corporation, though, I don't think you, you'll have a very strong banking relationship. You'll be able to explain to your bank that you want to buy like mass mutual 
uh, you know, a, was 160, 170 year old insurance business in, in Massachusetts in America. I'm sure they have extremely strong banking relationships and explain to the bank that we're going to invest 100 million in Bitcoin. And of course, allowed 100 million to come out of the portfolio's bank account uh, uh, to a provider who then facilitated that 100 million dollars worth of Bitcoin buy. And they're showing that on their, their effectively the balance sheet of the portfolio um, that they have this cryptocurrency safely stored through this service provider. I'm sure they're doing it that way. And, and obviously, in and out for those types of institutions is fairly, fairly easy. But um, you need to know who to go to and you need to, and this is where we help, you know, help institutions because it's not that they can just suddenly, I mean, if you're, if you're main, but if you're main, um, if you're a UK based company right now and your banking partner is Barclays, you can't ring up your Barclays um, relationship manager and say, can you facilitate Bitcoin for me? They don't have that service. Um, so you have to know how to, to facilitate that. So I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's certainly getting easier. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, it was almost impossible to uh, have you know, fluid flow of banking access and uh, movement between cryptocurrencies and, uh, and fiat. It was very, very difficult. Um, now it's getting easier with more service providers coming online with big names like Fidelity, uh, Northern Trust, um, as I say, Standard Chartered. Mm-hmm. And then you've got banks in individual company, countries like in Switzerland, there's a number of banks now that allow you to go to hold uh, and flick in and out of crypto within a banking infrastructure. And also um, in Italy, there's Banco Generali, and in Spain, there's BBVA, all, all companies, all banks you've heard of that now have services for underlying clients. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not, it's just getting easier. I wouldn't say it's easy. And, and presumably it gets more difficult as the, as the value of Bitcoin climbs. I mean, you mentioned Mass Mutual, who went in at 100 million last year. I don't know what it's worth now, but let's call it, it 2 billion. Um, no, not that much. No, it would be worth about sort of probably about three, 400 million now, something like that. Right. Okay. But, but there will, there will be, it's a big number. Hmm. And there are not that many banks, if it was an FX trade, who'd be able to simply take that on their on their own book straight away. They'd have to find the other side of it, they'd have to hedge it and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, is, is, is looking at it as an FX trade a sensible way to look at getting in and out of Bitcoin or not? Um, yes, I mean, there are, there's, there's a couple of FX providers I know that allow you, and now um, some of the market makers and liquidity providers on crypto. So... They, they have the, the large scale banking access, the ability to move a few billion if they need to, um, that sort of level. Uh, it is possible, but again, it's, it's more bespoke. You know, if you're talking about large sums of money, you need to be able to navigate the banking network as well as the cryptocurrency network and the custody network mm-hmm. and the insurance network. Uh, you need to be able to navigate those. And, uh, and yeah, as, as you know, if you, I'm sure you do from the banking world, forget all the cryptocurrency stuff, moving large amounts of money can be quite problematic in the banking world, um, and unless you have strong relationships and a lot of it's pre-prepared um, before you start moving the money. Mm-hmm. One final question, which is, go back to, to where we began, which was Bitcoin and Ethereum as primary digital assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think there is a, a kind of straight path from from 
cryptocurrencies as primary assets right through uh, through these CBDCs and stable coins um, and these corporate currencies you, you you referred to earlier to security tokens. To oh, yes, I mean yeah. secu security tokens um, are a very interesting uh, invention. Um, they've um, they have been around a couple of years now, and there are some. There have been some projects where, including one, we um, I was fortunate enough to be working alongside a company that uh, I co-founded um, a few couple of years ago, where we actually created the first uh, equity-based um, security token with partnering with Navara and uh, London Stock Exchange, and that was a fully regulated process, a fully regulated. Um, company onto a members-based exchange. It's the first in the world. And now there are other people that effect effectively are copying that process. And um, we, so security tokens have a place, but they certainly are very, in terms of market, they're very small at the moment, but they are, it will be a growing market. And it's not a case of, um, you know, if it's going to happen, it's more when, and it's just, it's an education problem right now. I was talking to one of the other prominent private providers in the UK for security tokens um, just last week. And they were still explaining to me that it's still such a big education. We've got a real education challenge. And, uh, and it's an education to, uh, to, to explain that the, um, the benefits and really prove the benefits of, of tokenizing uh, an asset. An asset could be um, shares in a company, shares in a property, shares in a piece of art, shares in a car. And there's projects that uh, are set up to do that in a digital sense. And, um, but as I say, it's a market which is growing, but not as fast as I would have liked. But certainly when you start to think about some of the advantages of this um, and it moving into place areas like derivatives and other things you can see some huge market opportunity there for, for these security tokens in the future uh -huh. so it, it's not a matter of uh, of if but when and one of the characteristics of, of digital technologies is they can scale very quickly so once this period of learning and education is over uh, or even while it's still going on, maybe the maybe I can tempt you to to make a prediction about. All my predictions have been wrong on security tokens. Uh, well, <laughs> I thought everyone's were... predictions are wrong about everything. I think. <laughs> I, I thought by the end of twenty twenty, we would see um, we would see a massive uptick of, uh, of issuances and uh, and other companies issuing tokens for shares and so on, things like that. Um, but we haven't seen that and. It's been very slow. Uh, there have been projects, but it's not uh, not at the scale that I thought it would be. So uh, realistically, for this to become mainstream, I think we're talking about maybe four years, something like that, four to five years before four to five years before we start to see a large flow, and it becomes you know another another effectively product that financial services support. And the, and the change will come from the primary market, not the secondary market. You won't find existing securities being transformed into, into tokens. Yeah, it's an interesting one, um, but we've got to see what's the benefit. I mean, one of the benefits of, of um, securitizing a token is effectively providing additional liquidity um, through 
having it uh, placed on different markets, uh, different different access. Um, so if you're sitting on, you know, say you're sitting on AIM right now through the London Stock Exchange, and um, and your liquidity is very small, and you think you know, there'd be real interest for from Asian investors and from maybe South American investors for your product because your product is is a global product and uh, be, and you can see that there's going to be interest in effectively um, capital raising additional capital raising or, or uh, accessing that market for investment then there could be a case that you you take you take the the shares that are issued on name and tokenize them and then are listed on alternate venues um, and the tokens can be swappable between those venues. Those are some of the, bit, the benefits of the digitization. Uh, and it's definitely possible, but uh, I think the demand is going to come from uh, primary issues. So lots to look forward to. Rob Gaspar, thank you very much. Well, thank you. And uh, I really enjoyed it. <laughs>